Catch Roll Podcast. The podcast, episode seven. Welcome back. We took a couple days off, but we're back, back with a vengeance. I've got a great, great guest for you guys today. Dr. Michael Greger is coming on the show, and he is the man, the brains, the energy, the genius behind my favorite nutrition website, nutritionfacts.org. Uh, if you haven't checked it out, um, you should check it out right away. Pause this podcast and go visit it right now. It's really my go-to one-stop shop for trying to educate myself better about the foods that I eat and you know, wh- whether it comes to um, should I eat this superfood or that superfood or you know, what's the deal with soy? Is soy good? Is soy bad? And what about fish oil? And you know, I'm hearing that it might be toxic, but other people love it. And what about superfoods and certain antioxidants? Which, you know, which antioxidants are best of all the berries out there? Which berry you know, packs the most punch? Whatever you want, I almost guarantee you he has a video on it. You can go there and then on the left-hand margin, there's a, a, an index in, in alphabetical order of basically every single topic that he covers and it's an endless index. And then there's a search window. You can just type in you know, type 2 diabetes or turmeric or, uh, you know, pork or whatever it is, and it'll pull up a series of videos. You can watch them, and he kind of lays it out step by step, his opinion, well, not really his opinion, what the science, the, the peer-reviewed research that exists out there, the latest peer-reviewed research says about that food, about that disease, about that condition, whatever it is. And what I love about it is that it's a it's a nonprofit site so he's not making any money off it there is no advertising on the site it's literally a public service and what he does is he reads all these he, he literally doesn't sleep the guy stays up all night every night reading these peer reviewed journals and articles <clears throat> and then he condenses them down and reviews them in these short you know 2 to i don't know 5 minutes might be the longest video up there Um, where he kind of goes through what the research says and then reconciles, you know, sort of conflicting research and comes up with a conclusion based on the evidence, based on the science, based on the peer-reviewed articles and journals and, and gives the viewer a takeaway that is easily implemented into, you know, your life. And so I can't urge you enough to, uh, to check it out. Um, I've used it innumerable times and, in addition to that, he happens to be a really energetic, dynamic, uh, fun guy to talk to and to hang out with. I had the pleasure of meeting him this past summer at a couple veg fests that I was speaking at. I first met him in Toronto, and I, of course, I was familiar with him. I was like starstruck to meet the guy uh, because I, f- I felt like I knew him already from watching so many of his videos. So I met him in Toronto, uh, was able to hang out with him, you know, spend a little time with him, and then saw him again in Washington, D.C., where he lives, where I spoke at the VegFest there. And, and I just thought that he would be the perfect uh, person to bring on the podcast to kind of kick off um, some intensive nutrition uh, kind of talking points. Um, you know, there's been, it's been really fun doing the podcast, and, and, you know, we're really grateful for all the support. We've got some great comments on iTunes and some really amazing feedback. Uh, but you know, I'm getting some comments or some emails from people like, when are you going to start talking about the nutrition or getting into the nitty gritty? And, and, uh, and so, you know, that's where Dr. Gregor comes in. I mean, he is a wealth of information and I couldn't be happier to 
have him on the podcast. Uh, when I when I started this, I was really kind of against the idea of bringing in guests via Skype, just because there's something about you know sitting across from somebody and having a conversation and kind of letting that conversation unfold organically and and you know when you're sitting there and they're they're right across from you and you're looking into their eyes there's a certain kind of energy and magic that that occurs that's irreplaceable um and for the most part i want to you know sort of stay true to that and continue to have most of my guests be people that i'm conversing with in person but i thought well what are the people that you know are who are the people that are not in los angeles that are going to be difficult for me to sit down with um, in the near future, you know, I may, I might be back in DC or I might, you know, meet Dr. Gregor along the path, uh, sometime in the next year, but I don't know when that's going to be. Uh, and so I just thought, well, you know, let's bring in the people that live far away where that don't live in Los Angeles that I'm not going to be able to sit down with, you know, in the next couple months and, and get them on. And so very, very excited to bring, uh, to bring Dr. Gregor in. We had a great conversation and, uh, thank you so much for all the sort of user or listener uh, submitted questions. I tried to get to a few of them and, you know, he doesn't even need to be interviewed. You just give him a topic and he just goes. And I tried to just get out of the way and let him speak some truth uh, and set us all on a better, healthier path uh, to eating better, feeling better, preventing disease. And uh, even, and we get into this a little bit, you know, reversing some congenital diseases and how you can do it too. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in Fleetfoot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But 
no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm going to tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Without further ado, Dr. Michael Greger. Nice. Yeah. Oh, my God. This is fun. Thanks for doing this. <laughs> yeah, it's a pleasure. Uh, it's an honor to have you on. Thanks for taking the time. Well, congrats on how uh, meteoric the rise of this podcast is. It's so exciting. Well, it's been fun. It's been pretty fun. I mean, we were having a good time doing it, and uh, there was definitely like a, a mad rush the first couple episodes, and I think the way that iTunes works, at least, is they have some kind of algorithm so that when there's a lot of activity in a short period of time, it kind of overinflates the rankings a little bit. So it's settled back down a little bit. But the downloads are really, you know, really high and people are responding to it. And it's been a lot of fun doing it. So, yeah, we're rocking it. It's been good. You deserve it. You (laughs) deserve it. Well, I'm just trying to put some. Put, put the message out to the people. Give them some good content. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, no, it's, it's the message. So I think that, you know, I think that it just shows that it's not me. It's people, you know, they want, they want something new. You know, they, wanna, they want a new way and they want someone to lead them there. And it's the information, really. So I'm just glad that, you know, there's an audience out there. So it's cool. I'm with you. I'm with you. No, no. I mean, and this is the same thing happened with, you know, the China study with forks over knives. I mean, you know, they got like 300,000 Facebook fans. Why is that? Is that because the movie was so great? Mm-hmm. It's because the information is so great. I mean, you know, I mean, so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And you, my friend, are at the forefront. 
We. <laughs> what have you been up to? Oh, man, it's all 2013 content, man. I'm going to run out of videos January 6th. I got to get my uh, get my button gear here. So, yeah, that's what I've been working on. But uh, this is my favorite time of the year. I got, uh, you know, when I when I'm finally the research is done, I just got to put together the put together the new uh, presentations, you know. Right, right. Well, I want to get into that. Is it all right if we just roll into it? And start, oh, yeah, start man. Recording? Yeah, anything. Right, Anytime, cool. man. So um, nutritionfacts.org, which is my favorite go-to destination when I want to find out something quickly and expeditiously on a specific subject matter related to nutrition or a particular kind of food or should I eat this, should I, shouldn't I eat that, or I'm hearing conflicting information about, you know, this nutrient or that, like you, you are always the first place that I go to is nutritionfacts.org and, and 99 times out of a hundred, you already have a video up that really like in a, in a very elementary, uh, objective way, you know, walks the viewer through an understanding and based on the research, you're always, you know, showing in these videos, the, the materials that you reference for, uh, you know, whatever it is you're pontificating on and, and even asking, you know, yourself, well, I read this and this didn't make sense. So then I read this research study and trying to reconcile different, differing opinions and, and coming up with a, you know, a cogent reply that the viewer can kind of take away and implement into their lives. I mean, it's an amazing service and it's really incredible what you've done. Oh, I'm so glad. Uh, so glad you appreciate it. It's uh, yeah, we're up to about 1,500 topics now, covered in hundreds of videos. It's really kind of the first non-commercial, you know, science-based website to provide feed daily updates on the you know latest nutrition research. You know, via these short, kind of easy to understand video segments. Um, you know, new video uploaded every day. So now the site's been up a little over a year, and so now it's another few hundred videos added. Um, and uh, I mean that's you know I mean I started this because I wanted to to know the material and so uh, but there's so much wonderful information out there I needed to get it out to the world and so uh, that's what I've been doing for well for a decade now but just uh, just uh, only recently online right and you know when I first started watching your videos I thought well you must have a staff of dozens of ah! people that are working on this because <laughs> I think you're putting up at least a video a day, you know, what is, oh, it, what, is would, the, yeah. what is the rate at which you're uploading these videos? <laughs> yeah, I wish. Yeah, yeah, new video every day, although I'm, I'm afraid in 2013 I'm going to have to back up on that, but I, but I promised I'd do at least a year of video every day. Basically, so every year there's about 13,000 articles uh, published on human nutrition, at least in the English language. Um, and so I scour through all those, download, categorize, and read about 3,000 of those that look interesting. And then, you know, out of those 3,000, I'm usually, you know, I'm, I, I pull I get pulled together, you know, 365 videos to, to put one up every day. Um, and then, but, you know, then the next year rolls around, and I got another 13,000 in my inbox. And uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to, hard to keep on top of them. Uh, but... Uh, but, you know, there's just so much amazing stuff out there. You know, I mean, you, you hear, you know, there's a new drug, there's a new, you know, medical procedure or instrument. You'll hear about it, right, because there's a profit motive behind it, getting that information out there. But, you know, some new article pops up on the wonders of broccoli or something, you'll, it'll never see the light of day. It just gets buried, right, because there's just no incentive to kind of get it out to the masses. And so that's really what I 
kind of what started me on this journey is just kind of to take this mountain of great nuggets of life-changing, life-saving information and, you know, just get it out to the world, you know, from, uh, from it, instead of it just being buried in these, uh, in these, in the medical library basements. Right. And, you know, there's not a lot of big giant corporate interests rallying around, you know, getting to the bottom of broccoli, right? It's a, it's really a public interest, you know, kind of offering that you're doing here. <laughs> right, right. And that's the, and right. And that's the point. Cause there's just, there's no, I mean, even you say, well, wait a second, people make money off of broccoli. The problem is there's no, you, you can't brand broccoli. So no broccoli grower is going to pay to put ads on TV saying how wonderful broccoli is because odds are you'll go buy someone else's broccoli. So you won't kind of profit yourself. You know, it's funny. That's why we see so many uh, articles on kiwi fruit, for example, because there's basically one company that basically has kind of a monopoly on the, on the world's kiwi fruit uh, uh, exportation. And so they know there's odds are about 80% that if you buy a kiwi fruit, they're going to benefit. And so they've been pouring money into kiwi fruit research. You see all this amazing research. You see research on soy because it's a big soybean industry, right? But there isn't a big pinto bean lobby. But the few studies that have come out on pinto beans and navy beans, so amazing effects of those as well. It's just when there's money to study these things, you universally see these whole plant foods having these, you know, these amazing effects, not only in terms of prevention, but even treatment of uh, some of these clinical conditions. And so it's, you know, follow the money. Um, and, and sometimes there is money. There's uh, government money going into um, – and to doing this research. But then once research is done, it needs to get out to the world. And so that's, I kind of feel I'm that bridge mm -hmm. to, uh, to get this science out there. And as you said, you know, all the, all the studies I cite are all linked from the website, you know, a full free text whenever possible. You can read the original studies yourselves, make up your own mind, you know, I, and so it, I'm constantly, you know, trying to kind of, I mean, every time I go to the library, my family's like, what do we got to eat now? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's always evolving and changing, I'm sure. Yes, I know. And so, oh, why is there parsley and everything all of a sudden? Or, you know. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's really interesting about, you know, corporate interests behind certain kinds of fruits and, and vegetables, uh, you know, and following the money. That's, that's fascinating. Um, and just so the viewer knows, I mean, if you go to nutritionfacts.org, uh, I think on the, um, is it, you just did a site redesign, but as I recall, on the left-hand side, there's, you know, literally like every subject matter under the sun, and then there's a search window, and you can just search in, you know, whatever it is you're trying to get to the bottom of, and it'll pull up blog posts and, and videos on that specific subject matter. And, and you can quickly navigate to, you know, exactly what you're trying to inquire about. And, and if there's something I'm not covering, you know, uh, email me, call me, you know, my contact right. information is on the site, you know, I'll look into it. Uh, you know, I, I tend to have a bias towards kind of the more common conditions like, you know, diabetes and things. But if, you know, people have these rare cancers or, you know, I mean, I'd be happy to, you know, I'm in the library anyway, I'd be happy to look and see what the latest is out there in terms of kind of dietary interventions. I mean, the nice thing about dietary interventions, I mean, I'm so privileged to be a physician that, you know, uses uh, so much nutrition in their practice because, you know, there's essentially no downside, right? There's no side effects. In fact, the side effects are good side effects, right? And benefit other conditions. And so, 
And there's a very low bar in terms of how much evidence one needs to add some of these healthy things to one's diet. You know, so, you know, a study will come out saying, you know, cinnamon helps, you know, control blood sugars or something. And so, you know, I start, you know, uh, having people sprinkle their cinnamon on their oatmeal in the morning. And, you know, I'll have a, a colleague say, wait a second, one study, you're changing your clinical practice based on one study? That's, you know. <laughs> They're coming at that from the pharmaceutical model, which is very true because drugs kill people. In fact, kill about 106,000 Americans every year. You know, surgery can kill people. So, I mean, the bar has to be very high. Any new treatment, any new therapeutic, right, because it could have negative side effects. It could hurt people. And so I, that's a good, good knee-jerk reaction among physicians to be like, wait a second. I'm not giving somebody something new, you know, unless we, I'm sure, um, uh, you know, we have a good decade of data. But it's like, well, we're talking about cinnamon, right? I mean, you know, I mean, so, you know, when this, these kind of common um, spices that, you know, people are, 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 you know, eating anyway. I mean, they, they uh, you know, that's why, that's why I can jump around so much. And, you know, one year I'm recommending one thing, and another year I say, oh, we got to pull back on that because we have new data in. You know, that's my, my recommendations change every year. And they have to. I mean, I think anyone who follows nutrition who is basically spouting the same stuff they said 10 years ago is just not following the literature, or they're just kind of tied up in kind of, it's more about their ego. You know, they kind of come upon this is the way to eat. And so then they filter the information that comes in based on that, you know, screen. Okay, if I think food X is good, then I'm just not going to look at anything that questions otherwise. And I'm just going to kind of cherry pick the articles that support my view that cherries are great. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and so, but, you know, that's, you know, you, you need to have more intellectual integrity than that, especially when what you say you know, can, you know, I mean, you're, you're affecting people's lives. You know, you really have to have that real burden of responsibility on one's shoulders before, you know, uh, you know, uh, anything comes out of your mouth. Right. I mean, it's hardly the scientific method to do otherwise. And, but you see it a lot and you see it a lot in the sort of plant-based nutrition world, of course. I mean, you know, and I talked about this on an earlier podcast, how, how powerful, uh, and, you know, often sort of, misconstrued or misinterpreted the word vegan can be and how, you know, how, how somebody who is, you know, a quote unquote vegan carries that as an identity and there's an ego attachment to that and it becomes like a whole thing. And, and it can, it can make you sort of myopic, I think, in certain respects, or you become so attached to that one thing that you become unable to kind of consider or look at, you know, alternatives. I mean, I'm convinced that plant-based nutrition is the way to go, but but I don't think that I would be a very, you know, intellectual human being if I wasn't willing to look at the counter arguments or consider them or, you know, try to have the best understanding that I can about what I'm putting in my body. Absolutely. Because, I mean, what could be more important than putting in your family's body? And, you know, and, and for both of us, I mean, you know, uh, you know uh, there, there are people that are following, you know, our suggestions. And so, you know, it can't be... Um, based on anything else than the best available balance of evidence at any one time, right? It doesn't mean that it's great evidence, but it's just the best available evidence. How else can we make decisions about anything in life other than with the best available evidence? Right. And sometimes there isn't peer-reviewed research or the, re the research is spotty and you do your best to infer what it's trying to say and extrapolate from that, I suppose. 
Yeah, well, I mean, for me, if it's not peer reviewed, it basically doesn't exist. I mean, I mean, if it just isn't in in kind of these so so called refereed scientific journals, I don't. I mean, I I just don't cover it just because, you know, it's really it's hard to to separate the kind of wheat from the chaff there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so and so, you know, I just don't you know deal with kind of anecdotal accounts and you know people say, I mean, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, you can tell. You know, you know more about your own body than any doctor can tell you, right? So you eat food X, no matter what the science says, and you don't feel good, don't eat food X, right? There's food allergies, food sensitivities, you know, and so people come up to me and say, you said that this was great, and I ate it, and I felt crappy. I'm like, then don't eat it, right? I mean, (laughs) you know, they do large numbers. And so, for example, you know, one, 200 people has a soy allergy, and for for them, soy is no good, right? And so... Um, you know, I see a lot. Uh, you know, but I see a lot of kind of failure to thrive, folks. So people that uh, start eating plant-based diets and for a variety of reasons don't do so well, and and, and th- this can be part of it. So, for example, they never ate soy in their life, and now their whole diet is centered around soy, eating these kind of meat analogs, and they just happen to be, you know, one of the few few people that's allergic to soy, and they had no idea because they never really been exposed to soy, and all of a sudden they feel crappy. Well, I mean, you know, uh, you know, there's no reason you have to eat soy. You need any of the other legumes, beans, peas, lentils. Um, uh, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's important to, uh, you know, there is the best available science for, you know, we can make these kind of public health recommendations. But at the same time, you really have to be in tuned um, to your body and really anything that makes you think about what you put in your mouth. Um, you know, some people that do detoxes and stuff, all sorts of crazy stuff. I mean, the benefit, no matter how what they are, the benefit is it gets people just conscious about what they're eating, what effect they have. And so it's when people eat unconsciously where I think they can run into a lot of problems. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's great advice. And you know, all the time I have people saying to me, oh, I tried a plant-based diet, I tried a vegan diet, didn't work for me, you know, or whatever, and, and, and just write it off in the most, you know, generalized terms. And, and, you know, my question is always, well, well, what exactly were you eating? You know, I mean, you can eat poorly on a vegan diet, you can eat poorly on a plant-based diet, and you really have to, you know, delve down and mine into exactly what someone's eating and, you know, work with that person to figure out what they're missing or what they're eating too much of, et cetera. I mean, just, just because you're eating, quote, unquote, you know, plant-based or whatever, that can mean so many different things. Right. And typically those, you know, that, that, that move towards the plant-based tend to be eating healthier than the vegans who are doing it often for kind of political or animal welfare reasons who, you know, they could care. I mean, they just want their favorite junk food in vegan form. And so now they can have marshmallows. Well, great. But, you know, vegan donuts aren't, you know, it's just the tr- same trans fat content that non-vegan donuts have. Um, and so, right, and you know, and some people plant based is just vegetarian. They're eating cheese pizza all day, and they feel crappy. Well, duh, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so absolutely. So you know, I have people, um, you know, send me basically three day diet histories where they just I tell them to eat, you know, just what they typically eat, and then record everything that goes in their mouth, water, anything, um, and you get a good sense, and you just kind of kind of crunch the numbers and see where people are doing and. Um, uh, and you know, I, I, there's never been a case where I haven't been able to, um, kind of, you know, figure out a way for someone to be able to, uh, to, um, you know, be healthy and happy on a, on a, on a plant powered diet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wanted to backtrack a little bit. Um, 
you know, we met a couple times over the summer. I was out, you know, doing speaking gigs with my book, and, and we came across each other. I think I met you first in Toronto at the VegFest there, and then again in D.C. And uh, for those out there, uh, Michael is a delightful man, and he's an amazing uh, public speaker. So if you have a chance, at the end, we'll, you know, throw up some links or, or any upcoming speaking gigs you want to promote. But anyway, um, you know, fast friends from the get-go, and and uh, I love this guy. So I wanted to know a little bit more about your background and kind of what led up to this. I mean, what, you know, you know, from college going forward, where did you develop this interest and fascination in, in nutrition? Did it come before medical school? Is it a product of practicing medicine? And then, you know, how did you kind of uh, go from there to become an advocate for a plant-based way of eating? It was actually way before. I mean, it was, it was when I was a kid back in the seventies. Um, it was uh, it was my grandma actually. I mean, that started my whole career path. Um, uh, you know, I I think the spark for many kids to you know kind of want to become a doctor when they grow up is you know watching grandparent get sick or even die. But for me, it was watching my grandma get better. Um, uh, and I actually have a video on the site where I show, you know, picture my grandma at her grandson's wedding, you know, 15 years after doctors had abandoned her to die. She basically had uh, a couple bypass operations. And basically, at some point, you kind of run out of plumbing. And so basically, there's nothing more they could do. They sent her home to die. Um, you know, wheelchair bound, crushing chest pain. And then she heard about this guy, Nathan Pritikin, who was one of kind of the early lifestyle medicine pioneers. Um, uh, and uh, it's basically like uh, he ran this live-in program. You stay a few weeks, put you on a plant-based diet, teach you how to cook. And uh, basically they wheeled her in and she walked out, you know, and wow. I'll, uh, I'll never forget that. And, you know, for a kid, you know, that's all that matters. You, you know, you get to kind of play with grandma again. But uh, she was given her medical death sentence uh, at age 65. And thanks to a healthy diet, she's able to enjoy another 31 years on this earth. Um, until 96 with her six grandkids, including me. Um, in fact, she, I was so delighted to run across. She's even mentioned, actually, the, the official Pritikin uh, biography. Uh, it was called uh, The Man Who Healed America's Heart. Um, and it talks about how, you know, the people you saw are really kind of the death's door people. And it talks about Francis Greger, you know, who arrived, you know, wheelchair, heart disease, engine, claudication, great pain, chest and legs. Three weeks, she was out of her wheelchair walking 10 miles a day. That's incredible. And, Three weeks. And, she was, and so she was like this. She was like the poster child of, you know, this, 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 this guy's practice. And that was my grandma. And it was like since then, it was just like, you know, it, it's like medicine from the movies, like where you heal, you know, you heal on hands, right? You lay hands and it's like, you know, um, and uh, and but then I kind of looked at and so realizing the wait a second, heart disease our number one killer of both men and women every year since 1919, a number one killer can not only be you know prevented, not only be stopped in its tracks, but actually reversed, right? You know, arteries opening up, unclogging without drugs, without surgery, um, uh, just with these simple lifestyle changes like uh, exercise and a plant-based diet. And 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 but since that time, right? I mean. Since, and, you know, in, in 1990, when Ornish finally published this, um, I mean, Pritikin had been reversing heart disease for decades before Ornish showed up. But Ornish actually published it in, in uh, the most prestigious medical journal in the world, 1990. 
um, showing this reversal actually with angiography. It's a bit in Pritikin's day in the 70s. You, you, you people got better, but they basically they said they got better, and so people were like, "Well, maybe you didn't have heart disease in the first place." But now we have what's called angiography, where you can inject dye into people's veins and do these special X-rays. You actually see how 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 patent how open the arteries are, and so Ornish was able to publish and show that yes, put people. On a strictly, uh, you know, plant-based diet, see their arteries open up. Since that was published decades ago, now hundreds of thousands of Americans have died. Right, completely needless deaths. Right. I mean, we we have the miracle cure. We've had it for decades, yet you know, hardly anyone's even heard about it. Um, and so, if that, if our number one kill, if, if kind of the cure to our number one killer. Um, isn't out there, isn't publicized, isn't well known. Then what else is there in the me- in the <laughs> that we don't know about? And so that's what started me on this path of you know I, you know I had the uh, the privilege of um, doing my uh, my postgraduate medical work up in Boston, so I had access to Harvard's uh, medical library, and so I could just like you know and they have like the last century of medical science and you could just pour over this stuff and find all this lost information that just never got out there because there's no kind of you know financial incentive for it to get out there and so that's so that's uh, why I went to medicine that's what how I choose the kind of medicine that I'm doing and uh you know and as, as soon as I got out you know I I was doing clinical medicine for full time for um for a while, but then I realized that, you know, seeing, you know, even though I was changing, you know, kind of whole families at a time, right, you could change kind of generations of people's eating, um, you know, by curing one person's diabetes or something, but, you know, seeing, you know, how many people can you see in an hour, you know, I realized I needed to kind of, you know, do medicine on a broader scale, so, um, so uh, about a decade ago, I kind of went on the road. I kind of went to, you know, if you go back on my website, like my speaking schedule, I was doing like 40 talks a month. Wow. I would, I do, uh, I do like a morning rotary and then afternoon I do kind of a medical school lunch, then a community talk in the evening. And literally I was on the, on the road for years. Like I had no, I mean, I didn't own a pillow. <laughs> I mean, I, oh my I mean, God. Um, and, uh. And yeah, I lost a marriage over it. Not an easy life to live. Um, but I was just so driven, right, to get this information out there, particularly kind of train the trainers, get at the, 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 the first and second year medical students and, you know, really inspire them um, what kind of tools they don't even know are available. Um, uh, so that, that, that lasted as many years as, uh, as it possibly could. Um, and so then I started doing, uh, turning it, uh, you know, doing this, my, my annual nutrition reviews where I literally read through every issue of every English language nutrition journal in the world. Um, uh, you know, I, I made it into a kind of an e-newsletter, then did these annual, started this annual DVD series. And so then when someone wanted me to come speak, I'd be like, here's a DVD. Right. <laughs> um, uh, and... Uh, but it was, but uh, you know, but you know, so I can reach thousands of people that way. But this this information really has to um, reach millions, and so I, uh, you know, couldn't have been happier when I was contacted uh, by this uh, by this uh, public health foundation up in Canada, actually, that contacted me, the Julian uh, Jesse Rash Foundation, uh, and it's basically said, you know, your stuff has to be online. I was like, couldn't agree with you more, but you know, that's not my strong suit. 
And so they that that's how Nutrition Facts got started. They just put put all my work from all the old DVDs, just put it up online, um, and then uh, you know been able to you know showcase all the work uh, in there since then. Went up uh, August last year, so um, little uh, little over a year now, and uh, still going strong. Um, uh, unfortunately, the the foundation is kind of a uh, they they see themselves as kind of uh, venture philanthropists, right? They like to you know seed money projects, and you know are looking forward to moving on to the next big thing. Um, uh, so actually, on this Friday, I'm uh, gonna kind of send out a you know kind of you know a, a, a pledge plea. <laughs> to uh, get some end of year donations, hopefully. Now, nutritionfacts.org is a 501c3 nonprofit charity. Um, and uh, so, hoping to um, kind of keep the, uh, put up a new donate page, hoping to keep the website going, you know, using this kind of, you know, Wikipedia model, you know, where, you know, offering a public service, you know, hopefully considered valuable enough that people, you know, will feel kind of moved to support it. You know, everything on nutritionfacts.org is free for everybody. Everything always will be free. No one should have to pay, you know, for life-saving information. We accept no advertising, never going to run ads. Unfortunately, commercial interests too often have kind of corrupting influence in nutrition. You know, we don't accept, you know, corporate funding. You know, never will. Mm-hmm. Even been accused of being in the pocket of big broccoli. It's it's not true. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can't think of a more worthy cause. I mean, if you have any, you know, additional information on that you want to forward to me, I, I want to help you, you know, promote that and get the word out because, uh, you know, I can't think of anything, uh, you know, that I think would be more valuable to to everybody than to have that thing get funded so you can just do what you do. And, and getting back to what I said earlier about thinking that you had dozens of people doing these videos, I know for a fact that you do them all yourself and you sleep very little in order to get all this stuff done. So you've, you've, you've sort of borne this cross and taken on this, you know, not really burden, but responsibility, like you said, and, and it is a huge responsibility. And, you know, you deserve the help uh, that, that you need in order to c- continue to keep the quality high and get the message out. Yeah, yeah. So all my time is donated. Basically, there's one and a half paid staff. We have our web developer, and then uh, we have some working part time, just helping with some of the logistics. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. I'm afraid. Yeah, I'm gonna have to pull back to to three videos a week just because I have to pay for access to some of the scientific uh, publications and some of the illustrations, images, and so. Uh, but I'm hoping to keep it up and as uh, as many uh, as many new videos as possible. But uh, yeah, yeah. Any help getting the word out would be appreciated. Yeah. All right, come on, people out there. Let's help this out. <laughs> well, I want to get back to about you. You, you know, you talked about Pritikin and and how that had such a big influence on you know your grandmother and your life. And and I remember, you know, I was a kid, but but uh, he was like you know the first real kind of big name in nutrition and diet, and it was quite a splash. But then it was like you said, quiet for several decades uh, before you know this kind of movement, the the pendulum kind of swang back and and now this is you know really in the zeitgeist in a way that it never it never was before and Pritikin really I mean he he was the precursor to you know the forks over knives and everything that's happening now I mean you had people like Dr. Esselstyn and and you know pockets of other people practicing this but it really didn't reach you know any kind of public consciousness until really recently with forks over knives and the like that has put it out there in a whole new you know way that the the mass populace is you know able to really see it and and absorb this information it's really cool 
this the, uh, this summer I think was the real kind of breakthrough with Clinton and uh, you know the last heart attack on CNN. And you know it's funny they made it sound like you know breaking news. We found this way we could reverse heart disease. You know, for anyone who's been involved in this for decades is like, oh god. You know, I mean, they, you know, in fact, both of the the folks they profiled, uh, Ornish and Esselstyn, have literally been publishing um, in the medical literature for over a decade on this. Um, you know, it's been no secret. It's just it hasn't got out there. But uh, but hopefully, you know, I agree. Um, uh, well, things- I think it was ballsy even today for CNN to do that. I mean, look at who advertises on their website and on their network. And, you know, no other major broadcasting network was going to go near the story. So. It is interesting that it still is kind of this maverick thing to talk about this kind of stuff. And, you know, our conglomerate big media companies are are beholden, you know, and they can only move so much when it comes to, you know, getting good news out to the people. So that's why, you know, sites like Nutrition Facts are, are all the more important. You know, I actually, you know, I looked back, you know, Pritikin cites all this work back from the 20s in terms of, you know, I was saying, well, where did Pritikin get it from, right? Um, you know, so he basically had the same story as my grandma. He was 43 when he was told by a cardiologist he's going to die because of his heart disease. Um, and so he did all this research. He was actually an engineer by training. Um, and uh, so actually I have some videos coming up on Nutrition Facts to talk about kind of where he got it from. It's actually these fascinating these studies um, from Uganda uh, back in the 1920s in uh, these all these East African countries, the last ones to westernize. It's actually this influx of all these thousands of uh, British expats. So we have this kind of rich English language literature of all these doctors that started a medical society, started a medical journal, because they found – that in these large populations, you know, with, you know, 15 million, 17 million people, that these chronic diseases that are laying to waste Western societies today were practically non-existent. Um, and so people, you know, what are the, these people were eating? Uh, the traditional African diet in that area was, you know, sweet potatoes and vegetables, corn, millet, pumpkins, potatoes, uh, you know, green leafy vegetables, protein from beans, eating meat maybe once a month. Um, and, you know, otherwise, eight like vegans had the cholesterol of vegans, averaged 145, no heart disease. Literally, they did these, these autopsy series, uh, you know, uh, you know 1,500 people, uh, you know, sequential autopsies, over age 40, not a single death from heart disease, right? Our number one killer, not a single death. They didn't have hypertension, all these diseases that weren't even known um, in these societies. And that is what kind of got Pritikin on his track. And so it's really it's really neat to go back and say, wait a second, this is not just, we didn't know this, you know, it's been lost from the 70s. Literally, we have a century of data um, showing the kind of, the kind of diet that can not only prevent, treat, but even reverse many of our leading killers. It's been there. It's been published. It's just a matter of getting this information out to the world. And now, with the wonders of communication, we can finally do that. Right. And yet, still, to this day, uh, you know, heart disease is America's number one killer. I think, what is it, like uh, 600,000 people a year have a heart attack or, 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 or 800,000 and 600,000 die from a heart attack every year or something like that? People, it depends how you uh, it depends how you die. Has you define death from cardiovascular disease? So, for example, do you include stroke deaths or not? But absolutely, our our number one leading killer, both men and women, um, basically half of uh, Americans are going to die from heart disease, um, a disease that no one 
should have to die. Literally no one should have to die um, uh, from, uh, from heart disease. There are still a few kind of congenital heart abnormalities. If you were born with some problems with valves, there's, you know, you still get rheumatic fever and screw up your heart. But in terms of, you know, this coronary artery disease, the leading killer need not happen at all if we just eat healthy. What do you think the biggest misconception is that most people have about eating healthy or, or nutrition? Uh, it, it's probably they just underestimate the power. All right. I mean, if you think about it, our entire, you know, we are what we eat. No, literally, physically, right? We are made up of, you know, air, water, sunlight, food, period. Like our entire bodies, right? Uh, you know, and, and uh, different organs and cell systems in the body regenerate at different rates. But literally, we are entire new bodies based on what we eat. I mean, so it should come as no surprise that, you know, nutrition can have such a powerful impact, what we put in our bodies. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it really kind of hit home to me with, uh, you know, my, my 2012 presentation. Every year, you know, uh, you know, my presentation is brand new because every year the science is brand new. So every year I kind of do a little highlights of, you know, what's been – what's kind of the latest, most interesting stuff or most groundbreaking practical work published over the last year. And so this year, as I was putting it together, I, I, I kind of did this framework. Well, let's just look at the, you know, the CDC's top 15 leading causes of death in the United States and just go through each one of the 15 and see what role diet may play in preventing, treating, or reversing. And what I found surprised even me, and I've been, <laughs> I've been doing this for so long. Where I realized, uh, you know, I get to some, get to one of the diseases like, oh well, you know, disease, you know, diet's not going to affect this disease, but you know, look, this is my talk, so I better look it up. Um, and one after another. So basically, um, uh, 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 a uh, a plant-powered lifestyle can help prevent 15 out of our 16 leading killers, can help treat more than half of them, and even reverse a number of them, including our top three killers. Um, so and we're talking so, about we're talking about heart disease. We're talking about diabetes, high blood pressure. Like what what are you know what are the what are the top ones beyond the the three that we all kind of know? Right. So the so the top three now actually has changed over the last year. Heart disease, cancer used to be heart disease, cancer, stroke, heart disease, cancer, COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, um, and then um, and then uh, the accidents is the one that we <laughs> that uh, that we can't uh, right. uh, have over um, and then you go down into um, into diabetes um, and uh, includes hypertension these are reversible conditions you know, kidney failure uh, liver failure the, um, uh, the, the, the other kind of chronic disease issues associated with obesity um, and these diseases can I mean, we, we can be, we can treat them. We can, we can, uh, you know, uh, nutrition can be used clinically, therapeutically, um, and that's really some of the most exciting things. So, for example, you know, Alzheimer's disease. Two years ago, it was eighth, the eighth leading killer. Last year, it was the seventh leading killer. This year, it's the sixth leading killer here in the United States. And we've known for 20 years that, um, uh, though that vegetarians uh, um, uh, have have about half the risk of becoming demented. So those eating uh, any kind of meat, right, white meat, red meat, have been 
between about two to three times more likely to become demented. Um, but some of the new exciting research is actually on treating um, uh, um, Alzheimer's, and other causes of uh, cognitive decline um, with various kind of natural plant-based remedies. Um, same thing with COPD, right, the, the, like emphysema. Um, basically, we used to think emphysema, you get worse, 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 then you die. Uh, and, but for the first time, we actually showed just this last year that with an intervention which involved basically just giving people a few extra servings of fruits and vegetables, um, you could actually reverse the decline, actually improve lung function, something that we thought was impossible. And how they do it? Fruits and vegetables, right? Whether it's the anti-inflammatory effect, the antioxidant effect, who knows? Who cares? I mean, that's really exciting. As a physician, that's I mean, on a public health scale, you want a prevention, prevention, prevention. But as a physician, to be able to treat some of these conditions that we thought completely untreatable, that's really some of the most exciting things for me. Yeah, that's quite amazing. Uh, I, I find that when you start talking about, you mentioned cancer, and, and people start to get real crazy when you talk about uh, using nutrition to deal with cancer. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk a little bit about that because it's so it's such a sensitive thing i mean you know heart disease you can kind of wrap your brain around it it's like okay well that makes sense but you know cancer seems to be a whole other emotionally charged bag altogether Sure. Um, you know, so 1990, Ornish, you know, uh, proved that you could reverse our number one killer. And so done with that, he moved on to number two um, with cancer. And so he actually did uh, a trial where he put men um, uh, on a vegan diet for a year and was actually able to reverse the progression of prostate cancer. Now, you can only do this in a few certain arenas, basically at the end and at the beginning, because it's considered unethical to use alternative complementary treatments um, as opposed to chemo. Um, and uh, and uh, radiation surgery, except in two circumstances. One, at the end of care and ter- in, in when someone's terminal and they just kind of gave up, then you can try stuff. Um, or at the early stages of certain slow-growing cancers. Um, so, for example, prostate cancer, in its early stages, it's considered medically acceptable a watch-and-wait attitude. Um, and so you basically, you know the cancer is going to start spreading, going to start growing, but we have a kind of a biomarker called PSA levels. We can track the progression of the disease. And so we want to delay prostatectomy, pulling out the prostate um, surgically as long as possible, but so we can just watch the, the growth of cancer. And so it's a watch and wait attitude. So look, while you're watching and waiting, might as well try things so you can see if you actually do something about the disease. Because having your prostate removed has all sorts of side effects like impotence and incontinence and all sorts of things. You want to keep your prostate as long as possible. Mm-hmm. And so, randomized uh, men, uh, you know, half eating a plant-based diet, half, uh, you know, eating their conventional diet. And after a year, was actually able to show not just a slowdown of the, of the PSA levels, which is, uh, which is a kind of a marker of the volume, the tumor mass, um, but actually able to reverse, right? So, uh, indicating tumor shrinkage, actually not just slow down the cancer, stop it, but actually shrink the tumors um, uh, compared to the regular group, which, of course, continued to get worse, and then they had to go to surgery, et cetera. None of the plant-based folks were um, forced into surgery because of rising levels. Um, and so that's, I mean, that is so exciting to be able to give someone um, that kind of hope. Uh, but again, it's only been tried in these very kind of unusual circumstances. Um, but um, you know, but that's that's some really exciting stuff. Now, the the Pritikin Foundation actually has continued along with this work. Did this elegant series of experiments. I have uh, about two weeks of videos on it. Or basically, you know, it's very. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to put people on diet for a year. In fact, how Ornish did is actually delivered hand delivered vegan meals every day for a year. That's expensive, mm-hmm. right? 
Uh, but look, if you want to find out what happens, put people on a vegan diet, you better cook for it. I mean, you better, you know, particularly for men who, you know, don't want to be, you know, but uh, who, you know, may not be able to cook for themselves. Um, uh, so, but so those are very expensive studies to do. So what these, uh, these uh, researchers did uh, was to, uh, this elegant series of experiments, they took people, they, they drew their blood, they put them on different diets, drew their blood, and then dripped their blood on cancer cells growing in a Petri dish just to see whose blood was better at suppressing cancer growth. Um, and so they did this men and prostate cancer, did this with women and breast cancer. And so I showed just the extraordinary results. You take women eating the standard American diet and you put them on a plant-based diet, not for a year, but for two weeks, two weeks on a plant-based diet. And you can – and their, the, 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 the cancer cell clearance um, – uh, I mean I actually, show, I actually show the Petri dishes with these carpets of human breast cancer laid down, what their blood could do before just two weeks ago and then two weeks afterwards or as little as uh, 11 days um, eating, uh, eating a plant-centered diet. Um, uh, what they could do, the kind of extraordinary abilities of their bloodstream to suppress um, cancer growth and actually uh, what, uh, cancer clearance, actually kind of inducing what's called apoptosis or killing off of cancer cells. Um, and um, I know this was uh, a combination of both uh, diet and exercise. They had these women starting to uh, walk 30 minutes a day, um, seven days a week. Um, and since then, studies have kind of looked at trying to tease out the diet and exercise effects. Uh, but um, so it's that kind of data that has people really excited, raising the question, wait a second, what kind of blood do we want in our bodies? You know, I mean, do we want, you know, you know blood that just kind of, you know, rolls over when new cancer cells pop up? Or do we want blood circulating to every nook and cranny in our body with the power to slow down or stop it? Right. I mean, what's so powerful is not just this preventative aspect of this regime, but the reversibility of these conditions. I mean, when I, you know, the more I hear about this and, and the more, you know, that I understand that these congenital problems that people have can be reversed with these simple changes to their diet, it's just, it's so, it's, it's just, it's so dramatic and so powerful that, you know, I just can't, I can't, you know, shout from the mountaintop enough about it. And it's quick. I mean, that's, I mean, so basically it's like, look, give it two weeks. Who couldn't give it two weeks, right? I mean, mm -hmm. 30 days would be better. But I mean, for some of these chronic pain conditions like rheumatoid arthritis and things, I mean, you can absolutely change people's lives in literally a matter of days. You know, I was just came back from Florida where this, um, uh, the Whole Foods Corporation does this thing for employees where it does this kind of week-long immersion um, where it basically shows people how to cook. It basically kind of a Pritikin-type spa program, gives people good, healthy uh, um, plant-based foods. And the stories from, you know, they're all grumpy and, and, and uh, you know, and, and caffeine withdrawing the first couple of days. But by the end of literally one week, that's when you have these stories where it's like this is the first time I've been without pain in so many years or, you know, we have to – take people off their meds because otherwise their blood pressure is too low, the blood sugar is too low. Um, I mean, it, that's just extraordinary. And you just have a feeling, oh my God, if we did, I mean, that should be the first thing when anyone walks in a doctor's office. All right, we're going to put you on a good diet until I see you next month, right? And then, and then we'll, then we'll see. And if you still have problems, then we'll deal with it. But, you know, that should be the default option. And unfortunately, we don't see enough of that. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I get, you know, I get a lot of emails from people that, you know, 
tell me these intimate stories of their you know health problems and and these dramatic turnarounds that happen in a very short period of time and i'm inundated with these emails as a result of the book so i can't imagine you know what you must you know the the sort of people that are, must be constantly trying to connect with you to to you know relate this kind of stuff and it, it it's so dramatic and you know, it's emotional. You know, these these are people's lives at stake, and and they're finding the power within themselves to turn it around drastically and, like you said, quickly. And they're pissed, understandably. It's like, why didn't anyone tell me this? Why didn't my doctor tell me this? Right? Well, I, I mean, want to get into that. I want to get. In, I want you know, being a doctor. You know, why why is that? I mean, I think I understand why, but like, why is it that? More doctors aren't, you know, well versed in this kind of thing. And and what do you think it is about, whether it's the medical school system or just the way, you know, our whole healthcare system is set up, that is sort of clogging the information channels and and preventing this from getting out in a better way. Well, yeah, it really does start in the medical school. So uh, only, uh, according to the last national national survey, a quarter, only a quarter, one out of four medical schools have a single course in nutrition. Um, on average, doctors graduate with four hours of nutrition training. That's out of thousands of thousands of hours of preclinical instruction, right? And those four hours are like you know the biochemistry of vitamins, right? Not really you know using you know nutrition, um, using diet to actually help people. Um, and so, no wonder. I mean, I, I mean, the, the sorry state of nutrition education that comes from a number of things: um, the boards, the kind of the, the kind of it's the kind of medical equivalent of the bar exam where you have to pass to become a doctor. I mean, they don't. They they about three percent of the questions are have anything to do with nutrition. So, look, if it's not on the exam and your medical school wants to look good and have really high pass rates on the board, you teach to the board, you teach to the test, and so you don't get any nutrition. Um, probably the bigger factor is the influence of the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, you, you, as students, certainly as doctors, you get taken out on what are called drug lunches where, you know, they pay for your lunch or they pay for your Caribbean cruise or they pay for whatever just to talk to you um, and to give you their, you know, their brand of propaganda. I mean, there's even literally schemes like you write your you, – you get a trip, a Caribbean uh, trip for every 40th prescription of this drug that you prescribe. It's like a little frequent flyer, you know. And so it's like, you know, uh, these kind of inducements, um, and they pay for a lot of, uh, of education. So if you type into Google continuing medical education, every doctor needs to get a, no- a certain number of hours to keep their license. I mean, all, nearly all the results, right, are all from drug companies who are just, I mean, they're who, who's paying. They're paying for free medical education. Of course they're paying for free because they're going to get so much on the, on the kind of back end. And so do you, think, the, do you think the problem is as malignant as – these companies, these pharmaceutical companies preventing medical schools from actually having robust nutrition programs where this information can come out? Or is it just, just the focus is not, on, is not there? Well, you know, it's interesting. In certain circumstances, there's a... Um, so uh, the reason we know about cholesterol, why do we even know about cholesterol? The reason we know about cholesterol is because, uh, you know, Lipitor, the statin anti-cholesterol drug, is the number one prescribed drug on the planet Earth. Literally billions of prescriptions, right? And so drug company, and look, these are drugs you take every single day for the rest of your life. It's like, you know, a pharmaceutical industry, you know, wet dream. Um, and so they 
uh, were they needed to they had they launched uh, these educational campaigns getting people worried understandably about their cholesterol so the reason that we know that eggs are you know these these you know these little uh, you know cholesterol bombs and the reason we know about saturated fat is because there was actually a financial incentive to get people to get their cholesterol tested because they knew um, you know, a certain percentage of those are going to go on drugs and very, very lucrative. Um, and so it's interesting how that, that, that's actually kind of complemented. Um, you know, and so now when I talk about cholesterol, people know what I'm talking about. They may not know a lot about some other kind of esoteric stuff um, about nutrition. I have to start with the basics. But the reason they know is because there's actually a financial incentive to get people to learn about it. But of course, then they don't want people to actually treat it with diet. Um, they want to, you know, uh, you know, get everyone on drugs. But they, you know, even if God, if they can get ten people, ten percent of people on drugs, um, they just made a huge amount of money. And so, um, in some cases, it works against us. In very few cases, it it works for us. But, but I think, um, yeah, if there was one illustration of kind of the power of or or kind of you know where the the medical industry is really stuck in um is um this uh Senate Bill th- uh, 38 out of California um so this was 2 years ago now um so Dr. John McDougall is one of the great uh, you know plant powered heroes um you know introduced basically wrote this this thing that's saying that all doctors need to get um, for their continuing medical education to keep their licenses they should um get a few hours of nutrition training and so it came out to like 7 hours over every 2 years or something i mean just some pittance but at least you know uh something's better than nothing um and so i actually have i actually have videos where i i show the medical organizations um testifying against the bill. So the California Medical Association came out against it. Uh, the Orthopedic Association, the, fa- the family medicine docs came out opposed to doctors getting a few hours of nutrition training every that's two ins- years. That's insane. It's, I mean, it's, so, I mean, that, it just shows that they're not even just kind of complacent. I mean, they're kind of going out of their way. So it is um, malignant. I mean, it really is a, it is a malignancy. Well, I mean, it's, it's, there, there, there certainly are. I mean, there's this. There's a, a multi-billion-dollar processed food industry. There's, I mean, there's a lot of money at stake. You mentioned advertisers um, to keep people confused about nutrition, right? Uh, so uh, I would encourage anyone who's interested in this kind of work, you know, to read Marion Nestle's great book, Food Politics. Talks about, you know, how the dietary guidelines get, you know, hammered out. I have a few videos on that as well. You know, who's on these dietary guidelines committees? And turns out they're the same people that are on, you know, the Coca-Cola's Institute for Beverage Wellness or the McDonald's <laughs> Sugar Association of Salt Institute. I mean, these are the people writing our, uh, you know, uh, writing our guidelines. And so she talks about having been on some of these committees, talks about the, you know, how, how they just want to confuse people. I mean, right. that, that's, that, that that is in their best interest. Talking about like the tobacco people, when they knew um, that they, they, there's this overwhelming science showing tobacco is killing people. Um, there's this famous memo that came out of all these lawsuits um, called Doubt is Our Product, right? That's what these, these, these PR firms, Doubt is Our Product, that's all they needed to do. They didn't have to argue cigarettes are good for you. All they had to do is instill this doubt. Oh, well, some studies show can't, uh, smoking is uh, bad for you, some studies show it's not, eh, just throw my hands up in the air. And same thing. With nutrition, by keeping people in this kind of constant state of this is good for you, this is bad for you, I mean, uh, people just say, ah, forget it, and just kind of eat whatever they want. 
Um, and unfortunately, you yeah, know, that plays I'll, into their favor. I mean, it, it, even if you're very well intentioned and educated, it's still confusing. You know, even if you, you, you're reading the labels and you're trying and you're trying, there are so many conflicting messages out there that that's exactly what happens. You just kind of go, ah, forget it. You know, I'll just eat what I'm eating. Right. Right. And I mean, that, and that's and right. Plays into their favor. But but, you know, look, this is we're we're putting this in our family's mouths. You know, I mean, so it really we need to take a step back and really, um, you know, take it upon ourselves to do some critical thinking You know, find out, you know, you know, you know, who's funding the studies that we're reading about. And these are the kind of things I try to keep um, in mind, you know, when I'm doing my work and I try to point out funding sources and. You know, it's uh, you know, so the, the scientific literature has its own problems. Who's funding the studies, and you know, but it's the best we have, right? And so, you know, and so that's why I've I've kind of tried to do my best to distill out the best available data at the present time. And look, it could change, but uh, all we can do is, is is do our best. Right. And if anybody out there is is kind of doubting this, I mean, all you have to do is go to gotmilk.com and you'll see the latest Dairy Council uh, offering that's intended to confuse people about nut milks and sort of position them in this imitation milk sort of context that makes it look like they're, it's much more unhealthy than the quote-unquote real thing. Uh, you know, check that out. I tweeted it the other day. Have you seen that yet? It's, but, you know, it's almost a – looks like a sign of desperation. Right, I mean, it's it's like almost so over the top, like some of the commercials that came out with, that it's almost like this is this is really, I, I think, an indication that they know um, things are, you know, that the truth is finally going to come out. They no longer have a monopoly on information, you know. So they're the ones that you know sends all the educational materials to all the classrooms in the country, and you know they used to have kind of the stranglehold on information, but now the people have ready access information. There's a lot of crap out there, but eventually the hope is, you know, the truth will eventually kind of settle to the top, and you know they just can't compete against the science, right? Absolutely. So I want to shift gears a little bit and get a little bit more specific um, and, and you know, get down into the nitty-gritty of some nutrition questions. I mean, I think that even within the, the plant-based nutrition movement, you have these sub-camps of, you know, different people that are espousing different ways of doing it. You have, like, the kind of high-carb fruitarian people, and then you have kind of the David Wolf superfood avocado oil people and you know, everything in between, the 80-10-10, and, and then even outside of that, you have the paleo movement, which I, I really want to hear your opinions on, and slow carb and low carb and all this kind of stuff. So how do we, you know, how does a well-intentioned consumer who, you know, might be considering a plant-based nutrition diet, you know, sort of navigate this and, and make the right decision? Like, there's all this stuff out there. Oh, well, you know, people seem to be doing really well on paleo, and paleo is great. And, you know, who wants to argue with bacon and all of that? So, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, the, the, the advantage there is, you know, people like to hear good news about their bad habits. And so it, it doesn't take much. Right? I mean, I have to, I have to, I, there's probably 50 videos on my side talking about the wonders of cruciferous vegetables, you know, dark green leafy vegetables, you know, like kale and collards. It takes 50 videos to get people to eat collards. But, you know, it would not take that many if all of a sudden I said donuts are good, quick. Um, of course. Uh, right. But so, um, 
Actually, I did a I, uh, I my second book was actually about low carb diets, um, uh, and actually was uh, um, uh, the, the Atkins Foundation threatened a lawsuit. It's actually it's funny. So the the full text of the book is online. It's AtkinsExposed.org. In fact, all my work, but all my books, all my all, you know all my nutrition work is all up online for free. Um, and actually, is that uh, all on NutritionFacts.org, or do you have a different site for that? So that I mean, so all the low carb stuff is on AtkinsExposed.org. So that's the full text of my book, and then the Atkins lawyers, the full text of their thing, and my rebuttal. It's really kind of humorous, um, but you know the same kind of things come up over time. If you look back, look, Atkins came up in the '70s. He was fighting, doing debates with Pritikin back in the early '70s. Then you know these cycles they keep coming back. It's like people so want to hear that you know that you know lard is good for you that. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of this easy sell. And so there's just this like you just have to wait a few years till people forget the past failures uh, and then, oh, a new low carb revolution. And so I see a lot of that in the kind of the, the latest kind of paleo um, uh, spin on it. But, uh, yeah, so I encourage people if they're interested uh, to uh, you can actually download the whole book as a PDF or just uh, curl up in bed with their laptop or whatever. Um, and, you know, the same tired arguments come up over and over again, really. Right. But just to be clear, like the, the paleo people will tell you that they're different from the Atkins people, right? So how are they different? And, and you know, what is it? There's a couple good things about paleo and they eschew dairy and certain things like that. But what is it about paleo specifically? Because it is so popular right now that people should be more aware of. Yeah, yeah. No, so, you know, it's like the Atkins thing. Atkins said, look, we got to get rid of the, you know, refined carbs, the white flour, white sugar, soda, milk, etc. And so you see a lot of the great stuff along um, paleo people too. And in fact, any, you know, I mean, so look, people go paleo and, and, you know, they stop eating donuts and all of a sudden feel better. Well, duh. I mean, you know, all the eating all that refined processed crap. Well, that's great. Um, but unfortunately, then they kind of uh, uh, too often kind of step in the realm of pseudoscience. Um, and so I, I'm, yeah, I really got to do. I have a few videos up on paleo. Um, there's a there's some person. I don't know if you're familiar with the um, it's a YouTube channel Primitive Nutrition. Mm-hmm. I know. So that so literally like a hundred videos, um, uh, really kind of debunking the paleo issue. And I felt that like oh, they've done such a good job that you know I don't I don't feel the need to have to do too many. Um, but basically, if you I mean if you look back at the true paleo, the true lessons from the Paleolithic, you know, two hundred thousand years ago, it's estimated we consumed about six hundred milligrams of vitamin C a day. I mean, that's the vitamin C found in like ten oranges, uh, the amount of vitamin E found in two cups of nuts, the amount of calcium in five cups of collard greens, and look, they weren't milking mammoths or anything. This was all from wild greens, a hundred plus grams of fiber. Right? We're lucky if we get twenty a day. Right? In fact, we got so we ate such a quantity of healthy whole plant foods. We as a species actually lost our ability to make vitamin C. Uh, we actually have vitamin C genes still in our DNA, but we just basically junked it because why bother? Like why waste the energy? Most other animals actually just make their own, but we're getting such massive doses every day um, uh, that you know that you know our body didn't need to make it anymore. But then you take our evolutionary heritage, fine tuned over the millennia, and plop it down into meat and potato chip country, and you got a problem. 
So look, paleo diet folks are right against railing against the refined and processed junk, and they're doing all you know everybody a favor by uh, continuing down that. But um, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 you know the paleo diet patients I saw in my practice. You know, they weren't eating weeds and a hundred you know grams of fiber a day. You know, they're eating burgers, not bugs. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I, I mean, it's just there's there's uh, it's it's you know people people are, I, I too often in my experience are using that as an excuse to eat unhealthy foods. And I think that there's some holes in the anthropological argument too. And and you know this whole hunter gatherer thing with an overemphasis on the hunting part and and because that's sexy and not enough attention paid to the gathering part, which I, from what I understand, and maybe I'm wrong, I'm certainly no expert on this, but uh, that seems to get sort of overlooked in the, the whole paleo ethos. Yeah, maybe, maybe a little sexism thrown in for that. that was... <laughs> Possibly. So um, if somebody's interested in kind of taking this leap into the, the world of eating plants, you know, people are scared or they're nervous or, you know, they don't know, they don't know how to do it right. And, you know, the biggest question that obviously always comes up is, you know, where am I going to get my protein? And, you know, I'm always talking about this. I'm sure you are as well. Um, you know, the sort of myths surrounding how much protein you need and, and the, the sources of, of, you know, the best sources of protein and sort of unfolding this notion that actually plants have, you know, quite a bit of protein and that our protein needs are really not as high as all these sort of marketing interests would have you believe. Yeah, no, the the official Institute of Medic- Medicine recommendations 0.8 grams per healthy kilogram of body weight, which is which is, you know, nothing. In fact, I mean, and even if you, you know, maybe an endurance athlete want to put that pushes that up to 1.1, 1.2, easy to do on, on, on plant foods. And the reason plant food, plant sources of protein are superior mostly comes down to food, in my mind, food is a package deal, right? There are nutrients in beef, for example. But though, even though they claim you can have it your way, you can't go into Burger King, order a Whopper and say, yeah, can I get that without the cholesterol, no artery clogging fat, hold the hormones, right? I mean, it doesn't work that way. Food is a package deal, right? Dairy has calcium, but it also is the number one source of saturated fat in this country, right? Which increases our number one risk factor for our number one killer, heart disease. I mean, so so wait a second. By getting your calcium instead from dark green leafy vegetables, what's the baggage that comes along with the calcium there? Then, instead of the saturated fat and the hormones, all that stuff, the baggage you get is the fiber and the folate and the phytonutrients and the iron and all the other wonderful things and greens that you're not getting elsewhere. And so, yes, there's protein in pork, but there's all the sorts of stuff you don't want in pork. Um, and so you can – I mean, so that's really – I mean, that's the – I, you know that's kind of so you go to like the you know Harvard school the Harvard you know nutrition website you know they'll say plant sources are the preferred sources of protein why and it's because this this sense well it's because you you can't get one without the other it comes all together um, and you know if you sit down people underestimate how much you know how much uh, protein is in you know in legumes and quinoa and other good healthy sources and again you're just getting this mountain of nutrition along with the protein without the stuff you really want to avoid
And what about this argument that the, the protein that comes from the dairy and the meat is, is a better quality protein? It's a quality protein, or it's more bioavailable, or it's complete in a way that plant-based proteins aren't. I mean, I see, I he, I see and hear that argument quite a bit as well. Right. So, the, so protein quality is basically um, uh, so all plant. So, uh, there's no such thing essentially as an incomplete protein other than gelatin, which is an animal uh, protein. All 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 proteins are complete proteins. Then they have all essential amino acids, um, which is what the, the whole point of eating protein is. Uh, but uh, the so-called quality scoring of protein has to do with the ratio of the essential amino acids within the food compared to the ratio of amino acids within the human body. So the highest quality protein, cannibalism, right? That would be the, the because then we'd have the perfect, perfect match. <laughs> right, and then you go down the scale. So, um, you know, a banana has a very different amino acid score. If we ate chimpanzees, it'd be better um, uh, in terms of that, that amino acid scoring. But what does that actually mean in terms of uh, – but, but that, that's kind of the extent of the meaning. It doesn't have the, the kind of uh, – the, the, when we think of quality, I mean, we, it has other connotations beyond just that. And so when one eats a – uh, a, a combination of plant foods. So yes, you know, legumes have higher in lysine, whereas grains have less lysine. But you know, people you know aren't living off single foods, or certainly shouldn't. But eating a, a diversity of plant proteins, you're getting your your own liver actually carries a basically pools the amino acids you eat through the day. And so if you eat a protein, a plant protein with low lysine, for example, a grain protein, well, your liver has all the excess lysine, has some extra lysine that's saved up from the day before and just complements it. And so you, your body builds all the perfect human proteins it needs. And so as long as you're eating a variety of plant proteins, not only is it a perfectly adequate source, according to, for example, the American Dietetic Association, the largest, oldest, uh, you know, uh, association of professional of nutrition professionals in the world. Not only do we not need to kind of combine proteins at every meal to get this uh, this mythical complete protein, as long as you're eating a diversity of of uh, whole plant foods and not eating just junk food on one end or you know salad on the other, um, where we just may not be getting enough protein because we're not getting enough calories, um, then uh, certainly not something to worry about. Right. I mean, it's a non-issue essentially. Sure. I, I mean, I, I, with the. I don't know, burn victims need particularly high sources. I mean, there's a few kind of rare conditions where you really need um, higher than average, you know, protein sources. So you really do want to make sure you eat a lot more legumes than one might normally would. But, um, uh, but uh, you know, legumes are the, the protein superstars of the plant kingdom, encourage people to find ways to incorporate in their diet. And so that's, you know, beans, peas, lentils, soy. Um, they, these are, these are uh, we, we all need to eat more beans. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when I kind of embarked on this journey and, and, started eating plant-based and, and began training rigorously, you know, sort of buying into this protein concept. And I ended up stacking my cupboards full of all sorts of plant-based protein powders and L-glutamine and all sorts of supplements. And, and, you know, was putting just, you know, spoonfuls and spoonfuls into, you know, smoothie blends and all that kind of stuff. And over the past couple of years, I've experimented with, you know, weaning, weaning those down and slowly removing them and then monitoring, you know, how my training is going, how I'm recovering, how I'm feeling, how I'm bouncing back and, you know, and, and tabulating performance gains. And I've realized that, you know, I'm, not only do I not need them, but I, I think I'm actually doing better the less of those that I eat. And that's not to say that I don't, 
use a scoop of plant-based protein powder in a, in a smoothie after a hard workout occasionally when I'm training like 25 hours a week and, you know, I don't have, you know, a five pound bag of lentils in my cupboard that day. So I'll do it occasionally, but I've realized that, you know, I really, you know, I really don't need, even when I'm training that hard, you know, literally almost a full-time job that I'm meeting my protein needs, I'm continuing to get stronger and faster and recovering quickly in between workouts. And I would have not have predicted that. Well, that's, uh, I'm so glad you're able to bring that to the world. So anyway, I want to talk also about um, oils uh, and specifically omega-3. I think there's a lot of consumer confusion about that. You know, fish oil is all the rage and, you know, where are we getting our omega-3s? Uh, and, and also talk about some of these other oils that, that people are using, hemp oil, Udo's oil, Udo's 363 oil. A lot of athletes use that. Um, and there was a listener question about MCT oil, medium chain triglyceride oil. So I wondered if you could talk about that just in the general kind of consumer health context and also um, with respect to kind of athletes and, and athletic performance, if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, uh, so in general, I mean, the the, uh, the problem with oils in general is that uh, a lot of calories, not a lot of nutrition, right? So they're in general kind of empty calories. So oil, processed oils are kind of the the kind of the the white sugar equivalent of carbs, right? So it's carbohydrate without nutrition. Well, okay, with refined oils, you can get fat without uh, without uh, nutrition. And so, look, you know, like a tablespoon of oil can have like you know 100 calories. And you're not getting much back from uh, for that expenditure. Now, having said that, you know, I mean, my practice are on athletes, and so I'm always concerned about empty calories. You want to get a lot of nutrition in their diet, but for people who are burning off, you know, thousands a day, um, uh, you know, then you know, empty calories becomes less of an issue. But I still like to see people eat nutrient dense diets. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, like the you know like the three six nine oil nine is just is monounsaturated fats you can get all the nines you want from eating you know healthy foods like avocados and nuts in which case you'll get all the other wonderful nutrients in addition to your um uh, uh, to your omega nines omega six we get too much of in general. There's been a big shift in the last century thanks to junk food where they use a lot of these really cheap omega-6 rich oils like safflower, sunflower, cottonseed oil such that our omega-3 to 6 ratio is way off. We're getting way too many omega-6s. So there's no reason we, we want to go out of our way to actually imbibe or you know add more omega-6s to the mix. What we should do is we should avoid those oils and go out of our way to make sure we're eating um, foods that uh, contain omega-3s. And so that's uh, flax seeds, walnuts, dark green leafy vegetables, hemp seeds. Um, so these are healthy. I mean, these these are foods we should go out of our way to eat. Um, and so you know, a handful of walnuts every day, two tablespoons of ground flax seeds every day. I think would be a really healthy addition to anyone's diet. Um, and see, these are the, the short chain omega three fatty acids, which our bodies then ex- elongate into these long chain so called fish fats, the DHA um, and EPA. Uh, now, the question is everybody's enzyme systems are different such that people have different abilities to elongate those short-chain omega-3s in plant foods to the long-chain um, so-called marine fats, uh, particularly old men, we think, and because uh, uh, women need to, need to create little brains in their uteruses, um, which has a lot of DHA in it. So typically women, kind of evolutionarily it seems, are better able at uh, converting those short-chains into long-chains. We're seeing some problems uh, in long-term 
um, people who are eating plant-based diets in the long term, some older men with um, – uh, who 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 pro- who are not getting enough omega threes, and so I've um, so for two years now I've recommended that uh, people may want to take a, a supplement of a long chain omega three, um, so a DHA and or EPA supplement. These are um, algae based, so the same place the fish get them from. Fish these are essential fats. Fish don't make them. We don't make them. Come from the bottom of the food chain. We can cut out the middle fish and not get all the the pollutants that build up in fish by going straight to the source. Um, uh, and, and so they basically make them in these stainless steel tanks. And so there's, you know, that we don't have to worry about contaminants. We don't have to worry about foodborne illness, et cetera. Um, and so, so for example, Udo's does have this, you know, algae based, um, you know, DHA. I think that'd be a good choice. Um, again, we may be able to make all the long chains we need, but unfortunately there's no kind of lab test that can tell us that. So particularly plant-based, um, uh, pregnant and breastfeeding women. In fact, a few months before pregnancy, I would, um, start supplementing with, uh, DHA. In fact, it may be a good idea for everyone to get maybe 250 to uh, 300 uh, milligrams of, uh, of those long chains DHA EPA every day or a few days a week uh, it's it's unclear we don't have uh, good signs either way but uh, that's probably that's that's where my recommendation based on kind of limited evidence uh, uh, kind of pans out right and the argument against well the argument for this sort of algae based DHA supplement versus a fish oil based supplement would be toxicity is that correct is that the main concern when it comes to fish oil and, and and so they have these so-called distilled fish oils on the market, very expensive. But it turns out that the di- fish oil, and I have a few videos on the site, the fish oil distillation process, actually, while it does get some of the heavier elements out, like the mercury, it does not eliminate like the flame retardant chemicals. Um, and so even so-called distilled fish oil still has a plethora of these toxins. Unfortunately, our oceans are kind of humanity sewer. Everything kind of eventually flows down to the sea. And so, actually, fish oil has the high of any kind of you know, thing we could consume. Uh, fish are number two, but fish oil, because many of these are fat soluble, is is the most concentrated source of dioxins and PCBs and some of these so-called organochlorine pesticides like DDT, which is still around. So, really, I mean, unfortunately, we unless you have a time machine and can go back before the industrial revolution and find some, you know. Some uh, some fish oil made back then. It really, the the only way that you can get uh, you know contaminant free um, long chain omega threes is through algae based supplements. Right, and I watched those videos, and it's fascinating because basically, even though these fish oil supplements are labeled as being you know toxin free or you know whatever sort of process they've used to remove the toxins from them. These studies and these tests on these oils have established that there's still, you know, a fair amount of toxins in them. So, just be cautious, people. Correct? I, Is that correct? I agree. Yeah, right on. All right, I wanted to ask another. Um, wow, we've got an hour and fifteen here. I don't want to take up t- too much more of your time, but uh, you know, something that's really kind of interesting to me that I'd love to hear your thoughts on is. Um, has to do with uh, training and athletic performance and, and recovering in between workouts. And I found that as an athlete, when I'm eating plant-based, you know, these are foods that are, that are very predominantly anti-inflammatory uh, and alkaline forming, and that allows my body to expedite uh, the recovery process induced by exercise stress. And so, in other words, I'm able to repair my body more quickly. I'm able to kind of avoid getting sick and 
protracted over the course of a training season, you know, this this culminates in in performance gains. Um, and you know, there's a lot of talk about these high antioxidant foods and berries like blackberries that I know you're a big fan of um, that really kind of help combat this oxidative stress. Uh, but there's in this recent sort of trend in sports physiology or you know what people are talking about which is well be careful with you know too much antioxidants because if you overdo it then you're going to prevent your body from experiencing that sort of adaptation that it needs to get stronger in other words by repairing yourself too quickly you are basically undermining the whole point of that training session that preceded, you know, what you've sort of imbibed to repair yourself. And that, yeah, that uh, I'm so glad you brought that up because um, I uh, that's something I actually went out of my way to do some videos on. They're going to be coming up in the 2013 batch, um, and because those, um, so basically, so for example, ultra marathon runners. Uh, may generate so many free radicals during a race, they can actually damage DNA of about uh, 10% of their white blood cells. You can pick it up. Um, uh, but uh, now, it's, you know, so some people look at, you know, exercise-induced increase in free radical production as kind of a paradox, right? Why would this apparently healthy act, you know, lead to detrimental effects, you know, you know and damage our tissues? Well, it's kind of somewhat of a misunderstanding. Exercise in and of itself is not the, necessarily the healthy act. It's the recovery after exercise that's so healthy. It's the, you know, kind of that which doesn't kill us, make us stronger kind of thing. Um, exercise straining has been shown to enhance antioxidant uh, defenses by uh, increasing the activities of a number of antioxidant uh, enzymes. So yeah, during the race, ultramarathoners uh, are taking hits to their DNA, but then you look at them a week later. This is very interesting. So they look six, way, six days after the race. Um, they did not go back to their baseline level of DNA damage. Every day we get hits to our DNA. But they had significantly less than when they started out with. Hmm. Uh, and, so, and that's because they so, that, that, uh, they so revved up their antioxidant um, uh, defenses. And so if exercise-induced oxidative damage is beneficial, uh, kind of like you know, vaccination, right? By freaking our body out a little, maybe we're inducing a response that's favorable in the long run. This kind of concept that low levels of a damaging entity may upregulate protective mechanisms is something in biology we call hormesis. Uh, so, for example, you know, herb herbicides kill plants, but tiny doses of herbicides actually boost plant growth, presumably by stressing the plant into rallying its resources to kind of successfully fight back. Okay. But wait a second, though. Then might then eating anti-inflammatory, antioxidant-rich plant foods undermine this adaptation response. And so I have a whole bunch of videos coming up, very cool, showing that, you know, berries can reduce inflammatory muscle damage. Um, you know, greens can reduce the free radical DNA damage. Um, just a fascinating whole long in terms of, uh, you know, uh, improving recovery and immunity, all sorts of other things, etc. But um, might that, again, um, uh, you know, might uh, might this uh, the undermine adaptation? Um, uh, and so that was actually first raised. The theoretical concern raised in actually '99. So this is going back a while now. You know, since you know maybe all this free radical stress from exercise is a good thing, and that so you know eating antioxidants might undermine the adaptation process. Well. 
Um, uh, so, you know, maybe if you decrease that free radical tissue damage, maybe you won't get that increase in the antioxidant enzymes that you see six days after a race. All right. So, um, uh, there's theories on both sides. The other camp, um, all the fruit and vegetable researchers say, look, yes, it's likely that muscle damage, inflammation, oxidative stress are important you know, factors in the adaptation process, but maybe minimizing these factors may improve recovery so you can train more and perform better. Okay, so theories on both sides for over a decade now. What happens when you put it to the test? And that's why I had to make a video because we actually have data now. Okay, so... Um, and it turns out, kind of long story short, while antioxidant supplements, pills, may prevent these adapt- uh, adaptive events, researchers found that berries, they used black currants in the study, um, although packed with antioxidant anti-inflammatory properties, actually augmented, improved the adaptation response, the health benefits of regular exercise. So when you, but when you, they put athletes on ox, antioxidant pills, vitamin C, vitamin E supplements, um, they they, re, they re, reduce the stress levels induced by exercise. But in doing so, they boot, they block the boost in antioxidant activity, enzyme activity caused by exercise. So uh, you know, the inherent uh, in the body sort of response. Right. So the so the, so indeed, um, the taking the vitamin C and vitamin E supplements were able to block the adaptation response. Um, uh, uh, now, maybe, uh, you know, they're not boosted as much because they don't have so much damage. But, see, with whole plant foods, um, uh, you appear to get the best of both worlds. So uh, they did a study with lemon verbena tea. It's basically this antioxidant-rich herbal tea. Protects against oxidative damage, decreases the sign of muscular damage and inflammation. They actually do muscle biopsies of athletes. Um, all without blocking the cellular adaptation to exercise. They showed that lemon verbena did not affect the increase in the antioxidant enzyme response promoted by exercise. Um, and in fact, um, this enzyme, antioxidant enzyme called glutathione reductase, the activity was even higher in the lemon verbena group. Not only did it not undermine the adaptation response, it actually not only decreased the, 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 the free radicals, but then helped boost your antioxidant defenses even better. Um, and this was after 21 days of intense running exercises um, in these endurance athletes. Um, and so, uh, again, not only can you kind of put a kibosh on all the, the damage, but then you still get the boost in defenses, in fact, an even better boost. Um, and uh, looking forward to getting up that video so you can share it with yeah, everybody. Yeah, that's very cool. That's fascinating. So, so really the thumbnail is you know, continue to eat the high antioxidant foods, these berries, uh, blackberries, blueberries, things of that nature, and stay away from the antioxidants, you know, in pill form, supplements, powders, and things like that. Correct. Right. Fascinating stuff. That's really cool. So, um, all right, I want to I wrap it up because I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. I'm going to have to have you back on if you'll come back. But uh, I wanted to ask one more question, which is um, about spirulina, chlorophyll, and, and marine phytoplankton and kind of, you know, the, the, the benefits, the dangers, what your thoughts are on kind of incorporating these foods into your diet. Yeah, I'm a big chlorella fan. Uh, sprinkle it on my popcorn with the nutritional yeast. Um, uh, the um, the concern um, has been raised about spirulina, um, uh, with which has been found um, uh, the supplement on shelves has been found contaminated with a number of these 
microcystin toxins. These toxins, however, are not made by spirulina. So you know, so so you you so you go um, these various consumer groups test various supplements on the shelf. So they test spirulina. They find these um, liver toxins, in some cases even these neurotoxins, in spirulina supplements. And so what do the spirulina manufacturers have to say? They they say that these toxins are not made by spirulina. In fact, I mean, it's kind of well-known biological fact, and it's true. So how could both sides be right? How could there be toxins in spirulina supplements? At the same time, um, spirulina doesn't make those toxins. Well, the problem is with their contaminants. So there are algae. There are these um, various uh, species of uh, algae that do produce these toxins. And unfortunately, when you're producing spirulina in these nice big lakes outside, you um, whether you're in you know the Big Island or whether up here in Oregon, um, there's a, you you unfortunately the, the the spirulina isn't a pure growth of spirulina. It gets contaminated by other algae. Um, which do produce these toxins, and because this has been found over and over again, um, unfortunately, we cannot seem to be get able to get kind of pure, you know, toxin. Or we can't be guaranteed we're getting pure kind of toxin-free spirulina. Unfortunately, because they don't do they they do kind of random testing, but they don't test every batch because it's expensive. So I have encouraged people controversially in the past to um, prefer chlorella supplements, which haven't ever been found to contain toxins. And not get spirulina supplements um, just because of the contaminating uh, toxin issue. It's uh, unfortunate because spirulina has all sorts of wonderful things in it. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, you know, and having said that, there's nothing – I mean, you know, uh, kale is cheaper, right? I can get a whole pound of kale. How much, how much a pound of chlorella is these days? But I can get a whole pound of kale, some, you know, nice local fresh grown organic kale. I'm a lot cheaper. And so whether you're eating your microgreens or your microscopic greens or your sea greens and sea vegetables, um, it, the important thing is reading dark green leafy vegetables um, every day, ideally. Um, for all sorts of reasons, for athletic reasons, for non-athletic reasons, um, and uh, if I was going to choose a uh, a, a microscopic grain, it would be chlorella over spirulina. Right. And what about marine phytoplankton? <laughs> Unfortunately, that's kind of a it's a large uh, it's kind of a large um, ill-defined group, such that there are actually some that uh, that appear beneficial. Um, but unfortunately, you still get this contaminant issue because they are, um, you know, kind of wild crafted um, in, in uh, outdoors as opposed to kind of growing them in pure cultures. And so, I would have kind of similar concerns with the spirulina, although we don't have that same. So, but more of a theoretical concern because we don't have studies showing that you can pull supplements off the shelves and uh, and uh, and show that there's toxins in them. Gotcha. So it always comes back to kale. It comes back to kale. It always does. Eat your, <laughs> eat your dark leafy greens, people. That's right. Bottom well, line, right? Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I think that's a great place to, uh, to end it. Um, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. You are a wealth of information. You're doing amazing work. Uh, I, I, I can't say enough about this guy, and I can't do enough to kind of support what you're doing and, and the message that you're putting out there. It's it's. It's great work. So everybody, absolutely stop what you're doing right now. Go to nutritionfacts.org and start watching videos. And you'll, you'll be up all night, as I have on many times. And, and know that <laughs> Dr. Greger is probably up all night, too, putting the newest one up, right? 
Exactly. Exactly. So yeah. I feel your pain. All right. And uh, if you want to check out his book and, and all this stuff about Atkins that we were talking about, go to atkinsexposed.org. And is there any other place on, well, on Twitter, your nutrition facts, nutrition underscore facts, uh, where else can people hook up with you and connect? Yeah, um, uh, Facebook as well, Nutrition Facts, uh, and and I post a lot of the new stuff. So if I'm doing a, a video in a few months on a subject, but the article came out that day, I'll post something on Facebook, and so it'll eventually all show up on Nutrition Facts. But if you really want the latest of the latest, uh, yeah, Facebook's a good place to go. All right, and you got any uh, speaking gigs coming up? Ah, uh, not until next month, thankfully. I'm uh, I'm still scurrying to get the 2013 batch up. I only have uh, videos queued up till January 6th, so I got to get busy. All right. Well, I hope to uh, see you out on the road again this upcoming year. Great. All right, man. Happy 12-12-12. Oh, indeed. Twice the number of the priest. That's right. All right. Thanks a lot for your time. I'll talk to you soon, man. I really, really appreciate it. Up the great work. All right, everybody, that's it for the podcast, episode seven. Hope you enjoyed it. If you're digging what we're doing, tell a friend or uh, maybe throw a comment up on the iTunes page for the podcast. We need all the support we can get. Every little bit helps. If you want to find out a little bit more about what Julie and I are doing, you can go to jilifestyle.com, J-A-I lifestyle.com. We have some interesting products, nutrition products and We're going to be putting some services up there. We're getting the B12 supplement up next week. Very important supplement if you're on a plant-based diet. I'll be talking a little bit about that more later. Uh, You can find me on Twitter, at Rich Roll, or go to richroll.com. That's my blog. That's where I'm hosting the podcast and uh, find out a little bit more about who I am and what I'm up to. If you're digging Julie, my wife, on the podcast, you can find her at Srimati Music, S-R-I-M-A-T-I music.com. You can uh, preview her beautiful album there, download it, check it out, learn a little bit more about her trip. And uh, she needs followers on Twitter. She's got a lot of wisdom. She's sharing it. So if you're not following her, you're missing out. On Twitter, she's J-I-C, J-A-I-S-E-E-D. So that's it. Uh, Thanks a lot for stopping by. We'll catch you on the flip side. Peace. Plants. Plants.